Yes, there should be some around, but there's some more up front. And uh, I think tw- 20 again, right? 920? Yeah, I, I think I may even be able to go a little shorter today. So, okay. Okay. Um, all right, well, uh, we have been walking through uh, the Old Testament together. And I did just want to make a couple quick comments uh, this morning before we get back into it. Um, the first one was, uh, I hope maybe you're getting to see a little bit how we sometimes think of application in Scripture and just think about what am I supposed to do. But as we've gone through the Old Testament, I hope you're seeing theology is applicable just as it shapes our worldview and causes us to worship. Uh, sometimes that is the application, is to worship. And so um, it's just neat to see how God's plan works out across history and how it's bigger than just me. Sometimes we read the Bible and we just think, um, this is about me and how I get saved and how I get to heaven. And the Old Testament sort of helps flesh out that God's doing something with the whole world. And he's moving history in a certain direction. And, um, and it's epic, like we said. So just some interesting thoughts. Uh, the last thing uh, I want to hit before we get into it, Jill Martin asked a really good question last week. Um, do you all remember that when we went through Judges, I said that it's about how Israel needs a king? And then in Samuel, we started talking about what that king looks like. And what Jill asked was, if you flip over to 1 Samuel, she said, hey, uh, I heard what you're saying, but when they ask for a king in 1 Samuel 8, sorry about that, 1 Samuel 8, um, They basically get rebuked for doing that. So did they really need a king? It says, um, they say to Samuel, the people say to Samuel in in 8.5 of 1 Samuel, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So she said, what's going on here? You said they need a king, but it sounds like they're not supposed to have a king. And um, we touched on it briefly, but if the answer, I think, is in Deuteronomy 17. If you flip, you can flip, you don't have to, but I think this is a, an important question to answer. If you flip back, uh, Deuteronomy 17 it has what's called the law of the king. And in starts in verse 14, and it says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. That choosing language is the difference. If you go back to the spot in 1 Samuel, uh, at the end, it uses the same words as uh, Deuteronomy 17. It talks about like all the other nations. They want a king. And then Samuel is supposed to warn them. God tells him to warn them against the kings. And he does that in verses 10 and following. And if you look down in verse... um, I marked it in my notes. Hold on. Are you you still in Deuteronomy right now? I flip back over to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Chapter 8 and verse... 18, he says, and in that day, he's talking about the things the king will do, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. And so he emphatically makes the point that the problem, uh, the problem is not that they have a king, the problem is that they chose it for themselves. They go to Samuel and say, appoint a king for us, instead of saying, have God appoint a king for us. And so the issue and the wording that's being brought out is that 
who's making the choice of the king? This is the people's choice, not God's choice. Does that make sense? Yes. Just interesting question. Thought it'd be helpful. Um, don't, don't you think too the Deuteronomy passage is lurking a little prophetic that the ideal was that he would be the king but he knew that they would ask and demand for a king mm-hmm. there are multiple spots in the law where it's basically a concession right. because of the hardness of heart like right. he says to Jesus mentioned that uh, yes absolutely so Jill thanks for asking that that was a helpful question um, okay, so as we've been walking through, we've sort of seen how uh, God, after the fall and sin, starts this plan to say, I'm going to bring someone who can crush the head of the serpent, who can defeat Satan. And he starts narrowing that line down of who that is going to be. And he shows that it's going to come through one family, Abraham's family, that's going to become a nation. And it continues to narrow, and it narrows all the way down. And we see in Second Samuel, it narrows down to David and David's family. And we see that God's going to restore the earth back to like it was at Eden and save his people and he's going to do it through a perfect king and that perfect king is going to be able to unite and fulfill all of God's promises and what we see in 2 Samuel if you remember we sort of finished up last week saying David is not the guy we know that David's not the guy and so we're looking for someone else someone from Abraham's family even narrower someone from David's family who can fulfill all these promises that God has made but it's not David and so we now move into First and Second Kings. We're going to try to go through Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and Esther today. That's what we're going to try to hit. And I think I think we can. I, I actually thought this week would be lighter. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, That's why we had to start at nine thirty. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Andrew. I'm sorry. Uh, so. We're moving over to 1 Kings, and we know that God's people need a king. That's how he's going to fulfill his promises. And we start to see in, in Kings and Chronicles this idea of uh, what does the kingdom look like? What does it look like when God's king rules? And you get the clearest glimpse of what this looks like in Solomon. And as an aside, uh, there are godly intelligent Christians that interpret this kingdom idea in a little bit different ways but I think the Old Testament is really helpful to flesh out that um, when when Jesus and the apostles talk about God's coming kingdom in the end they're talking about a real physical kingdom that's going to have a real physical king Jesus who's really going to rule there's a spiritual component but well let's just look at with Solomon so you what you get in at the beginning of first kings is who who's the Who's the real king here? And the real king is going to be the king that rules through God's power and not through his own. David, uh, if you look at the very beginning, my Bible says David in his old age is the heading. So David is old and in, in the light of the ancient Near Eastern world, David looks like he is a failure of a king. He, is, he can't do anything anymore. And the question's coming up of to uh, who's, who's really going to rule? Is it all about a king and his power and his glory and his greatness? Or is it about God and how he can use weak people to carry on his kingdom? And so David starts to show that, and it transitions then to Solomon. Let me get to the right page of my notes so that I'm not rambling and saying unhelpful things. Um, we, we get over to, to Solomon, and the question God's people are asking in exile is, 
are God's kingdom promises real or are they hyperbole? Is he real? This whole tying the donkey to the vine thing and creation really being restored, is that just sort of nice talk or is it really going to happen? And so we start to get a look at the potential of what it could be. And if you look in, uh, let's, let's go to Solomon. What does Solomon ask for when he becomes king? Wisdom. That is the answer uh, that I gave my whole life until recently uh, I realized, and it is true, wisdom is the right translation, but the literal words used are a listening heart. Give me a listening heart. And you have this idea, I think this will come up a few times today, that how we're not crazy at grace to emphasize God's word so much. It's throughout all of scripture. And even the description of what a wise heart is, in, in the way that the Hebrew language describes it, in the way Solomon asked for it, it's a listening heart. A heart to hear what God says, which is what we have recorded in God's word. And so that's the, the heart that Solomon asked for. And so you start to see, hey, maybe, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the king that can do it. David couldn't do it, but, but his son, maybe this is the one. He asked for a listening heart, and he seems wise. And, and chapter 4 is this huge peak, because uh, if you look, flip over to chapter 4, Three kind of chronicles how wise, hey guys, chronicles how wise Solomon is. And you get into four and you start seeing, look down in verse 20. Verse 20 is going to start describing Solomon's reign. It says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Does that remind you of any previous scripture? Promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham. As many as the sand by the sea. Okay, so Abraham was promised land people and blessing and that they were going to become numerous like the stars of heaven or the sand of the sea so check one uh solomon's kingdom meets this requirement of as many as the sand of the sea they ate and drank and were happy solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the euphrates land that hadn't been conquered up until david's time but was part of the promise to the land of the philistines to the border of egypt they're describing the full borders of the promised land that had never really fully been conquered before you've got people you've got land and you've definitely got blessing they ate drank and were happy Solomon's provision and now you get the list of what's on his table who cares what Solomon ate why does it matter and a few times today I might mention uh, papyrus or vellum or whatever they're writing it's expensive really really expensive you don't waste words and so why does it matter what he's eating well it's a list that very closely parallels all of the clean animals that Israel was allowed to eat listed in Deuteronomy point is this he was eating all of what he was, what was, all of what was possible, he had it. The land is producing in the fullness of what it could and should be. You've got Edenic type blessing and Edenic type language. Here's some of that Edenic type language. For he had dominion. Who's supposed to have dominion? Man. Man. That word is a key word that's used a few times. Over all the region west of the Euphrates, Tifash to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. That peace is a very important word. You go back to Genesis 49 where it talks about Shiloh, whose name means peace will come. Shlomo, Solomon, his name means peace and he has peace. They lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba. That's top to bottom. Every man under his vine, also Genesis 49, they're going to tie the donkey to the vine. Creation is going to be restored. You're looking at this and the Hebrew person is reading this going, we're in. We're in the kingdom. This is it. And then you start getting some problems. Even right here in verse 26. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and his horsemen. 
Isaac. What's the law of the king? What is the king not supposed to have? Many horses. And? Women. Women? And uh, something else. Money? Gold? Gold. Yes. Awesome. So strike one. He's multi- Isaac's in a group on Friday morning, and we've been hammering that. So, Good job, Isaac. Uh, so you've got the horses already mentioned right there, and it's just this little off note. It's like the little minor key in the happy song that's been going on. And so you start to see, okay, this might be it. This is the closest glimpse of what the kingdom's going to look like. Creation is being restored, and yet there's this little off flavor, this little off note. Solomon goes on to build the temple and there is an interjection where he builds his own house which is bigger and more glorious than the temple. You already have this idea that hmm, maybe he really isn't the guy. And as you keep going, you get over to chapter 10 and here's where you really see it. This is a fun little section because it makes it really obvious. We said they're not supposed to have girls, horses, or gold. That's what kings are not supposed to multiply. Listen, just listen to this in chapter 10. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and the business of the merchants, all the kings of the west, the governors of the land, Solomon made 200 shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. Do you think this is on purpose? It keeps going and says uh, gold shows up probably three more times. So he's strike one, multiplied what? Horses, he's multiplied gold, uh, and then we get the horses again now in verse 26. He gathered chariots, horsemen, 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. So if you got horses and gold, what's the next thing you think is going to come up? Men. Yeah. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. 11-1. Three strikes, you're out. So is Solomon the guy? Is Solomon the king that can put the kingdom right and bring this kingdom in? No, he's not. But we get a glimpse of it. We see what it could look like. Peace, creation restored, harmony within people. You start to get this, oh my goodness, this is what it really could be. But Solomon is not the guy. So, for the rest of the book, what you see is this idea that the kingdom shatters into pieces after Solomon. And no man can put it back together. No one can put it and hold it back together. No one can fulfill the Davidic covenant, unite all of God's promises, and carry them out. No one can do it. And... You start to see that when there is no king, God rules through his word. And it's, I, this is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite parts of the Old Testament. Because the rest of the book is about God's sovereignty and how he's still ruling and he's still active and he's still controlling every little detail of what's going on, even though his king isn't in place. And so, uh, you have Ahab versus Yahweh throughout a lot of the rest of the book. And one of my favorite spots is in chapter 22. So flip all the way over there. And this is a huge, huge peak chapter. And verse 19, uh, this prophet Micaiah gives us this glimpse into heaven and reminds us that even though the kingdom is falling apart, uh, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Even though the kingdom is falling apart, God is still ruling in heaven and this is a really neat picture. Do you all remember Ahab's wife? Her name is Jezebel. Jezebel. Good. Good lady, bad lady. Bad lady. Prophesied that she's going to die, and what's going to happen to her when she dies? This is a little gruesome. The dogs are going to lick up her blood. Ahab, the same prophecy gets made to him. Dogs are going to lick up your blood in the same place that they licked up 
visit your wife's blood, which is just outside the city. I believe it's Ramoth Gilead. All right, so we get over here, and Ahab goes out to battle, and this prophecy is standing against Ahab. And like I said, it's been Ahab versus Yahweh, and now we're at the peak of the book. Look down in the battle in verse 34. But a certain man drew his bow at random. This isn't the idea of, oh, it just so happened. This is the idea of he really didn't want to hit anyone. He's like trying to point it nowhere and lets the arrow go. And we know, is there a random? No. Because this certain, this one certain man happened to draw his bow at random and struck the king of Israel, Ahab, between the scale armor and the breastplate. That's like saying in between two little chinks of armor right by his heart. There's this little narrow window, and the idea is this guy pulls his bow, shoots it into the sky, who knows what's going to happen, and God directs that exact arrow like a, I don't know, seeking missile, I don't know, what kind of guided missile, just <laughs> GPS right into this guy's heart, right in between the armor, just like he said he would. But guess what? He's out in the field of battle. God said his blood was going to be licked up by the dogs in the same place, outside the gates of the city, like his wife. So it says, turn around and carry me out of battle, for I am wounded. They continued that day. And look at this note. Remember, it's expensive. You don't make extra words for no reason. In verse 35, I am. The battle continued, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until the evening. At evening, he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. You don't mention that for no reason. It's gruesome. There's no reason. And about sunset, cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died, and he was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. God controls where the blood flows and where the chariot goes and when it gets washed out so that it happens exactly according to his word. Even though there's no king on the throne, the king is on the throne. Make sense? I love that. It's weird, but it's awesome. Um, Okay, so Second King, or First Kings is showing you that Second Kings continues this same storyline. And uh, if First Kings showed the depth of the detail that God's sovereignty goes to, Second Kings shows the breadth of God's sovereignty that it's through every place in every way that He rules over everything. And we're not going to spend a ton of time here. Um, the, the one interesting note again about God's sovereignty and control in Second Kings eleven. Um, you have this evil woman named Atalia, and, and she, uh, it says here that Atalia, the mother of Ahaziah, 11.1, 1, saw that her son was dead. She rose and destroyed all of the royal family. This is talking about the line of Judah. If all of Judah gets wiped out, what? I, tell me the problem with that. If all of Judah gets wiped out. David's from Judah, just to clarify. If David's wiped out, there is no Messiah. If David is if David's if Judah's line is wiped out, we don't get saved. And this woman destroys all the royal family, except but Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Atalia so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Atalia reigned over the land. Second Kings eleven. If that baby doesn't get hid, we don't get saved. But God controls down to that detail. And the, the, the whole promise storyline of redemptive history is hanging on this little baby Joash. But God's got it squarely in his hand and he's holding it. 
if you continue on through Second Kings, you keep seeing over and over again that no man can put this kingdom back together. We need a God-man to put this kingdom back together. No man can fulfill David's promises or the promises made to David. You do start to see, you all remember Josiah, the king that reigns when he's young and he's a good king and it looks like, hey, maybe, maybe this, this is the one, maybe he can do it. But there's a really interesting reason why, Joash can't, or why Josiah can't do it. 23, 2 Kings 23, verse 26, says this really interesting thing. He, before him there was no king like him, verse 25, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Think Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God, according to all the law that Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Wow. But, still the Lord did not turn away from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The true king not only has to be perfect in every way, but has to be able to turn away God's wrath. And Josiah couldn't do that. So do you see you see the gospel in throughout this? We need a God man who can rule over everything and turn away God's wrath. Hmm. That sounds a lot like Jesus. Because he is that king. I'm not certain, but I think Josiah might be the only one that doesn't have anything mentioned yeah, in a bad way. Josiah. Yeah. They all, I mean, they all have something that's pretty egregious, usually. <laughs> okay, so we get to the end of Second Kings, and, and this is a really, really neat part as well. You all remember that God promises if you if you disobey my covenant, I'm going to bring curses on you. And I don't know if we mentioned this in Deuteronomy. He says you're going to go back to Egypt, meaning you're going to go back into exile. And that's exactly what happens. And towards the end, it looks like this, this kingly line of David is starting to fall and starting to crumble. And you get to this part in chapter 24 and they've been taken over by Babylon Nebuchadnezzar's come in and he's ruling and, and you have this line of Judah kings of Judah and we're still following that line because that's where the Messiah is going to come from and it says in 17 of 20, chapter 24 the king of Babylon made Mataniah Jehoiachin's uncle king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah so now you have a king reigning over Judah who's not the real king so I, I sort of think of this whole section as like camera shots in a movie. You have like the camera pans over this way and you have this guy kind of fake ruling Zedekiah. But the real king, Jehoiachin, is sort of pushed off to the side. And so uh, the city falls. The kingdom is appears to be completely broken. And in the last paragraph of the book, chapter 25, starting in verse 27... You sort of, I'm a mad, so I, here's what I imagine. It's the movie scene and you see the city crumbling and the, and the bad guys coming in and you know that like the Davidic line is wiped out. No more king, no more temple, no more, um, no more city, no more, like it's just, it's done. It's, it's over. And then you get that shot, I love this shot in movies where it's like, you see all that happening and then the very last scene it like pans to a guy in a cell. 
and he's just sitting there in a cell. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, and on the 27th day of the month, God knows down to the exact day, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin. This is the real Judah, uh, the real king of Judah, even though he's not ruling. He freed him from his prison cell, and he spoke kindly to him, and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, for his allowance, a regular allowance, was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. That is giving you this glimpse of, it's not all over. That, God is still preserving that line, even in exile. He's still carrying his promises through. He's, we, who cares about the allowance that some Jewish king got? But it matters because it shows God is still preserving this promise to bring one who can defeat the serpent and put the world right. With me so far? First and Second Chronicles, we're going to go through um, fast but not as in detail. So, uh, Basically, what you have in First and Second Kings is it's ask, answering the question: What is God doing on the horizontal level of kingdom and in the world and His plan and how is this going to work out? And First and Second Chronicles is more about the vertical of what's God's relationship to us. We're in exile now. Does He still love us? Did all this stuff that happened was it? What, did He give up on us? Did He reject us because we rejected Him? What What's going on in our relationship? to God, more of this vertical component. And Chronicles goes through and narrates lots of the same events we've already heard, but from the angle highlighting that God does still love you. God does still have a plan. God is still working. And so, even, if you, uh, if you've read through your Bible reading plan, uh, we were just talking about this, you might know that the first nine chapters of First Chronicles are all names. And so if you're reading, I don't know, a few chapters a day, that's like a few days of just names. And you start to wonder, why is this here? How does this matter? How in the world do I apply this to my life? And once you get the context of what's going on, you start to realize every name in this list is, is one more block on, the, on one more step of he was, God was this faithful, he loved you this much, that he would keep... Uh, Keep taking care of this line. Keep it going. Keep it one generation after another. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't forsaken you. I'm still carrying on. I'm still, if, if each of these names matter and lead to the Messiah, who eventually leads to us and our salvation. And so you look at this and you realize God is just being faithful year after year after year, name after name. He still has a relationship with his people. Because that's what he wants from the very beginning. He's walking with them in the garden. In Revelation, he's going to walk with his people and be their God Again, we're going back to Eden, and so God is showing, I'm still committed to my plan and to my people. Also, in 1 and 2 Chronicles, you get way more emphasis on the temple, because the temple is the visual representation of God's relationship with his people. If temple is right, relationship is right. So books that emphasize the vertical are going to emphasize the temple. Books that emphasize the kingdom are going to emphasize more of the, um, the king, the city, the ruling of the king through which the world is going to be blessed. That's all we're going to do on First and Second Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah. Everybody still okay? Yeah. 
uh, maybe not in your Bible. In my Bible, you can see the end of Second Chronicles and then Ezra on the next. Can you guys see that? Uh, look how the end of Second Chronicles and the first few verses of Ezra, they're the exact same. Here's why. Ezra carries on the story and the question of, does God still love us? Is God's plan still going? And Ezra answers that question with by talking about how, yes, God is still uh, concluding. This is the, the, the season finale of his storyline. That's how you can think of Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the season finale of the Old Testament in terms of um, storyline. And so Ezra is carrying on the story of Chronicles. He's going to talk about this vertical God and his people relationship. And here's the thing that keeps coming up. This can't be the end. This cannot be the end. That's where you, over and over you realize this cannot be the end. Think about this. What, what does, is it going to look like when the exile is over? When it's completely restored, what is it going to look like? Well, the people, you remember we said Moses tells them in Joshua, they both say, you need to obey God, but you don't have a what to obey God? A heart. You need a new what? You need a new heart. The people would have a new heart. Uh, some of the prophets tell us there's going to be this, this huge, beautiful temple when everything is restored. They're going to fully occupy the land. They're going to have dominion and influence, and the world will be at peace. And what Ezra is, and Nehemiah emphasize is, this can't be it. This can't be it. This is a season finale, but it's the cliffhanger season finale. It's not the nice, you know, wrapped up one. And, and here's why. Let's just look at uh, a few things. First thing to note, chapter 2, verse 64. Do you all see there it says, Ezra 2:64. the whole assembly together was how many? 42, Does anyone know how many people live in the L.A. area? I think it's like 4 or 5 million. I think it's, I think it's 4 or 5 million. Uh, they're going to be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. They're going to be a great nation. 42,000? I don't think so. This can't be the end. Also, when they rebuild the temple, awesome, this is the symbol of God's relationship and love for us. And yet, in verse chapter 3, that last paragraph, all the people shouted with a great shout. They lay the cornerstone of the temple. They shout with a great shout and praise the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not distinguish between joyful and the weeping. Some, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The final temple is supposed to be this massive, magnificent, glorious thing. But the people in this passage who had seen the first one are weeping because it's so lame, the second one. This can't be the end. Keep going over, uh, just a side note, in, in chapter 7, verse 10, you basically get the ministry philosophy of Ezra, which is hopefully our ministry philosophy here. Ezra had, his, had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Study, do it, live it, and then teach it. Just a quick note there. Um, yeah, Ezra, Ezra 7, 10. Yeah. Now here's 
Here's one of the final, this can't be the ends. At the end of the book of Ezra, he has to gather all the people. And they gather to confess a sin. Does anyone know what they're confessing and repenting over? Four, yes. Uh, four, they've married foreign women. This is like, like being an Israelite 101. Don't marry women that follow other gods because they'll lead you away. And yet that's exactly what they were doing. And here's the picture. Then all the men of Judah, verse 9 of chapter 10, all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square. Now imagine this. You'll be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, but you can all fit in a city square. They all sat in the city square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said, you've broken faith, and he goes into what they need to do, and then they have to say in verse 13, uh, but the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain, so heavy that we cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for a day or two. We have greatly transgressed. So here's the picture. It's pouring rain, and they're sitting out in the rain at the end of the Old Testament, just saying, we've sinned so greatly that we can't handle this in the right amount of time, and it's pouring rain so bad that we really can't do anything about this. Scene cut. This can't be the end. That's, that's the whole point that this is making. Uh, this cannot be the end. And the very last verse just drives it home. All these had married foreign women. He lists them. And some of the women had even borne children to the risk of wiping out the Davidic line and wiping out what it means to be distinct as God's people. This can't be the end. Uh, pretty much the same idea is carried out through Nehemiah, but he looks at it more on the horizontal level in terms of king and kingdom and how that works out in God's purpose for the world. And so instead of focusing on the temple and the relational aspect between God and people, he's focusing more on the city and the walls and rebuilding. And if the kingdoms, if the king's going to come and rule, he's got to have a city that's not broken down and in shambles. But the same theme runs through that this this cannot be the end. Um, one other side note for you, uh, Tim Ma really uh, pointed this out to me, and I, I really like it. it. Nehemiah, in chapter 1, prays this long, long prayer to God. And he's in his house. I sat down. I wept and mourned for days, continued fasting and praying. You've got long, intense prayer. Then you flip the page, and two, chapter 2, verse 4, the king calls Nehemiah, and he says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it please, you've got the king asking a question, and between the question and him answering, then I prayed to the God of heaven. So you've got this great example of long-extended personal prayer, and then this also great example of, right in the moment, I'm going to shoot an arrow up to the Lord and say, help me, I don't know what to say. Well, king, you know. So it's a really neat picture of, of how prayer works. Um, it's both It's both ends. It's all the time, it's quick, it's fast, it's short, and it's long uh, and personal. So Nehemiah continues on the story, basically showing this can't be the end. You get the repetition of the uh, chapter 7, verse 66, the whole assembly together was 42,360. That can't be the end. Uh, I said I'd mention this. Ezra 8, uh, they read the, the, the book of the law of Moses for uh, half the day. He stands and reads it. And just the note again, we're not making up this whole focus on God's word. 
it's there from the beginning and it's there throughout. It's the way that God rules and leads his people. And it's the way that God still rules and leads his church. Uh, chapter 9, verse 36, you get this statement. Behold, we are slaves this day and in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. What does that remind you of? When else were they slaves? Egypt. We're back to Egypt. This can't be the end. Let's see if I made any one more note. Um, let's keep moving. Basically, the end of Nehemiah. What you're seeing is he, he's doing all these things to to put the system, the priestly system, back in place. But it's just not what it was. There's sin, there's problems, there's issues. And again, this is to be continued. This has to be to be continued. The Old Testament pushes us forward to the New Testament. It, it demands the New Testament. So let's move on to Esther. And um, I think we will be able to finish on time or even a bit early today. In Esther, Esther is about how God is hidden but active. God is hidden but active. Uh, Tons of irony, tons of turnarounds. Uh, this is this is the book where uh, God's name is not mentioned in Esther, not once, and that is on purpose, very clearly on purpose, because it uses irony all over the place to show how God really is at work. Just like the guy who drew his bow at random and shot. No, God is at work, and so that is what Esther is showing. That even in exile, God is working and moving, and God turns it around. Um, a neat fact, I didn't know this, this book was not allowed to be read in concentration camps. Because even the Nazis understood the message of Esther. You go against God's people, God's going to win in the end. God's still at work, inactive. So, uh, just, just kind of neat there, but... So you, in this book, you get... It starts out with a pagan king. You get, now in the days of Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus is... A drunkard who loves ladies and is crazy and proud and arrogant. And the book starts off mentioning him. It doesn't start mentioning the Jewish king. It doesn't start mentioning anything other than him. And you just think, all right, we're in exile. This is not good. This is not how it's supposed to be. And you, as you go through the book, you, you meet these different characters. And you meet Haman and you meet Mordecai and you meet Esther now, are you all familiar with the general plot of Esther for the most part? Okay, I'm, I'm sort of going to assume that. Hopefully that's appropriate. Um, does anyone know what family Haman is from? Haman is the, the bad guy. Does anyone know what family Haman is from? When Haman is introduced, he is introduced... As part of the family of, of he's introduced as an Amalekite. Okay, we're gonna try to walk back here. Saul was Saul was the king of Israel, the first king of Israel. He was a failed king. His first and major failure was that he was supposed to destroy everything in a certain city, but he lets a certain king live. Anyone know the name of that king? He was supposed to hack someone up. Agag. Agag. He's supposed to kill King Agag, but he doesn't. And Samuel has to come. Or Samuel? Yeah, Samuel has to come and take care of it. 
Agag is part of the tribe of Amalek. Amalek chased Israel when they were going out of Egypt. And God makes, basically makes this promise that I'm never going to let Amalek live this down. I'm going to take care of them. And if you go back even further, they come from Esau. And we know from the New Testament that Jacob and Esau are this picture of God's election. Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I. So you have this storyline that kind of continues all the way through of Satan and his followers trying to take out God's people. And you see it recapitulated in Esau and Jacob, Benjamin versus, or Israel versus Amalek, Saul versus Agag, and now it comes up again with Haman on one side and Mordecai on the other. And it makes a point to mention that Haman is an Amalekite and uh, Mordecai is a from the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe. It's a way of saying he's from Saul's family. So re, this, is, uh, this, is, this is God versus Satan redux, basically. And my favorite spot in this book is in chapter 6. And what you have going on here is that uh, the king has put out this decree that he's going to kill the Jews. Esther goes in on Mordecai's uh, sort of orders and has asked the king to to avert that and to not kill everyone. And you start getting these reversals where uh, Mordecai is doing what is right and being honorable, and Haman is trying to kill the Jews, and he is evil, and he is carrying out the same satanic plan that's been going throughout history that he's going to take out the line of the Messiah. And then you get to chapter 6, and the king is... Ahasuerus, the king, is in his bed, and on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, you all have had nights where you can't sleep, yes? Do you plan them? Do you do them on purpose? No. So the king's laying there, and the king just happens to not be able to sleep. And then the king just happens to say, uh, let's bring some boring reading that will definitely put me to sleep. Read me the stuff from, from the Chronicles of the Kings. Okay. And then they just happen to open the book to the page that happens to have verse 2, and it was found written how Mordecai had told Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Earlier in the book, we find out how Mordecai discovers this plot against the king, lets them know about it, and saves the king's life, basically. And he just happens to open to the page that describes this. Hmm. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing. Nothing's been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? There's someone out while he was awake. There's someone in the court. Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court. Late at night, while the king's sleeping, just happens to walk in. And Haman, previously, had just said, let's build a gallows and hang Mordecai on it. We're going to get him. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanging on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And what does Haman think at this point? It must be me. And Haman said to himself, 
whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king, I laugh every time I read this, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on those whose head, or on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew. God isn't mentioned, but is God at work? Who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Do it all. So Haman, I would have loved to see the look on his face. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. God flips it around so that Haman's the one leading Mordecai around saying, thus it shall be done to the one whom the king delights to honor. Uh, let's hit also... He was Mordecai, but Haman was mortified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, what... Oh, I really want to end at twenty. Uh, we're we're gonna we're. I think we're gonna be able to hit it. Um, no, no. I I want to honor that. Uh, so the queen comes back in, and she's she's basically been buttering the king up to to say you know please let my people live. And, and so she comes back in and says what 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 do you what what do you want? What's your request? I'm in chapter 7, verse 2. Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my, and my, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. We are sold as slaves, men, women, men and women. I would have been silent. For, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And the king says to the queen... Who, is, who would do this? Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And now you get the, the camera pan. And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. There's another flip of God in control. The king arose in his wrath from his wine drinking, went into the palace garden. He's got to go cool off outside. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. And this is just hilarious. When he saw that there was harm determined against the king. And the king returned from the palace. So the king comes back in. Haman's begging for his life. But it doesn't look like that to the king. As Haman, he comes back in as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the eunuchs attendants, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on that. The ones that he had prepared for Mordecai and the king's wrath was abated. I love this story because you start to see God isn't named, but God is so active in every detail. And God, um, sometimes people trivialize like, oh, God has a sense of humor. God has a, he does have a sense of humor and rightness and justice. And it's beautiful the way he, he works these things out. And what's so cool, I think, about all of this is it ties into this whole overarching story of, of Satan versus God. Who's going to win? And it's played out through these different generations. And why that's cool is, if God was working then, that means God is working now. 
to fulfill his plan and carry out his purposes. He says that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. And the God who does these awesome flip-arounds and, and irony that is hilarious, 2,000, thousands of years later, more than 2,000, that's the same God at work in our lives if we're believers. And that, that is just really, really, really neat. Um, so praise God. Let's, let's be excited as we wait for Jesus to come back and put everything right and be the king that we've been talking about. Um, I'd like to pray, but I think Landon's supposed to pray. Yeah? Can we pray just to wrap it up? It just feels right to me. Lord, thank you for um, your word and its beauty and depth and richness. And thank you for the beauty of your mind that conceived all of this and your power that works it all out day to day. And thank you for your love that never fails or ceases or stops. Um, and for those who trust in you, you, you pour out grace upon grace and love upon love and mercy upon mercy. And so we love you and we delight in you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The one who just said you can't put prayer in a box. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is yours.